Hello everyone and welcome back to On Common Ground, a podcast where we look at our system of property ownership and explore different forms of land access that challenge dominant property regimes. I'm your host, Claire. So far in the series, we've looked at Indigenous forms of land management that contest colonial property regimes, as well as the right to roam and the Bruce Trail that offer alternative forms of access that challenge sole ownership. Today, we are going to be exploring waterfront property rights and how they can be tricky to navigate for both private landowners and members of the public. Waterfront development has become a popular topic amongst urban planners and designers. Waterfront residential development offers alternative land use for post-industrial waterfronts and often attract luxury condominium developers to revitalize these areas. Although waterfronts offer an opportunity for cities, they also pose many challenges. Building on waterfronts restricts the public's access to bodies of water that are inherently unownable. Private property also dis connects landscapes, which disrupts the movement of human and non-human lives. Historically, waterfronts have played a vital role in establishing human settlements. Water is a life-giving resource. It is used to sustain life forms, for transportation and trade, agricultural practices, and housing a diversity of aquatic species. It is imperative that planners and designers working in waterfront communities protect the water and the shoreline, as it is a public good that we all deserve access to. In today's episode, I will be talking to an urban planner, Don May, and a landscape architect, Pat Bullenberg. Both Don and Pat have extensive experience in planning and designing for waterfront communities and have a personal affection for the shoreline. I will be bringing in a case study from my home near the Blue Mountains in Ontario, where this question of waterfront development becomes quite important. Hello, Don and Pat. Thanks for being here today. Um, I think it would be good if you started by introducing yourself and maybe telling us a little bit about who you are and uh, your professional expertise. So uh, my name is Don May. I'm a land use planner. I'm, uh, I'm proud to say that I, I'm in the first graduating class undergraduate of planning at Ryerson University in 1973. So in the early 70s, undergraduate planning schools were starting to develop with uh, in our area with Waterloo and with Ryerson. I chose the consulting field as my area of practice. And uh, in the consulting field, it was a wide variety of projects, obviously, but uh, very basic uh, land use issues is what we worked on through my uh, 45-year career. Um, I'm proud to say as well that I was president of the Ontario Professional Planning Institute in 2003 to 2005, which also meant I represented Ontario on the Canadian Institute of Planners. My name is Pat Bolenberg. I'm a landscape architect and urban design consultant. I I practiced for approximately 45 years as well and graduated the same year as Dawn in 1973. My beginnings though started in the School of Architecture and completed three years before making a strategic decision to transfer to landscape architecture because the premise of all the work that I did really started with the importance in the context of site itself. And that really led me into my career. I was a founding partner in a consulting firm with its base in Toronto. And my work really led me into an international kind of geography. And I led the urban uh, projects within uh, our practice, which focused primarily on institutional work, campus work, waterfronts, streetscapes, 
urban parks and squares, uh, and I really sort of led that contingent of our of our scope of work. Uh, it led me internationally to many interesting places around the world to do master plans for national parks as well. And so it was a very rewarding period of my life. So why water? Why is it important? Why should we be considering waterfront and access to water when we discuss things like land use and urban planning? Water is special in my mind. It's, it's spiritual and something we can all use and enjoy. And what people have to understand is no one owns water. And therefore, everyone has the right to enjoy and use water. Property rights are subject to the rights of the crown. And when you look at a deed, it always starts out that way. And in the case of water, water is a resource owned by the crown. And therefore, you have the right to navigate water. You, you can go on water, you can travel where you want on water without permission because it has that public right of the crown. So it's a very, very important resource. And consciously, you have to be aware that everybody owns and has the right to water uh, subject to those uh, permissions. I think that's very important. Let me just, just add my, my thoughts on this. My beginnings and my birthplace is actually on the North Sea in, in Belgium. And so my first seven years, you know, I really developed a very deep and strong connection to the water's edge, which I engaged with at a very young age on a daily basis. And Dawn is absolutely right. You know, there is this magnetic pull to a shoreline. It's, it's very powerful. It's universal. I think everyone, you know, has this draw to the water. And it's a resource to engage with year-round. It's not just a summer uh, resource, but I think it's a year-round resource. And that brings incredible interest in the work that I've done. It has the potential to animate and to affect our lives on a daily basis. And that is really uh, instrumental in thinking about our lives and what, you know, what brings us joy and pleasure. And the water certainly is very high on that priority list. And so that brings certainly an area of interest to me. Don and Pat are absolutely right here. Waterfronts really draw people in. They captivate us. They provide us with a sense of peace, tranquility, and connection to nature. Water is a public right and needs to be maintained as such. So Don and Pat, can you explain what makes waterfront property different from, you know, regular lot lines? No one can own a body of water, and I guess no one can own a shoreline. So where does property title start and finish? So waterfront land, now we're looking at from the land perspective, is to the water's edge. And the water's edge is ever-changing. So when you look at when you look at ownership, you look at often the high water mark that it's been established to, but it really is a moving target in terms of the ownership being described to the water's edge. And I think that's important. In the case of water lots, which is kind of a different subject where the lot itself has ownership extending under the water. And you have to think about this. And it, and, and uh, there's quite a bit of it around uh, on the larger bodies of water. In the case of a water lot, the, the title is under the water, but you don't own the water above it. And people still have the right to cross it where it's navigable. But you could say, put piers down and create a dock in that area. But again, the dock cannot obstruct the navigable waters. So I'd say water lots, 
are, are very restrictive as to what your rights are, because even the peer and the foundations would require approvals. And then, and then we get into beaches, and beaches are part of really the, the aspect of, of the high water mark, as we've seen in places like the Sega Beach now, where the water has come up so high, it's taken over the beach. So in, in the beach areas, you, you have associated public right to walk along those beaches because of that. It gets somewhat tricky in a bit of detail as you get closer to the ownership of the deed. So people have a legal description into the beach, but it's subject to the waterline and, and it pushing back a bit. So it's really a, a moving you know, issue. But where the beaches are, certainly the ownership is not the beach. It's, it's for the public to own that associated with the water. This kind of changing access is difficult to navigate as a property owner and as a member of the public. Something we talk about in our urban planning school is informality versus formality in space. Public space sometimes offers informality because the use of it is not restricted or mandated in a contract. People can use that space differently. However, I mean, it does get very tricky when we see things like encampments in public parks because that use of space is not something municipalities will allow, but that can be an episode on its own. So informality can exist along waterfronts, where perhaps a private landowner allows public access on their shoreline, or an old easement is used as a walking path between the street and the shoreline, or even informal no trespassing signs along waterfronts that don't actually have legal standing. People should have the right to navigate waters and walk along a sandy beach. That cannot be taken away with private property. But it is unclear who has rights in this case. A private landowner may believe that they own the entire shoreline and that any person walking on it or paddling across the water is trespassing, where a member of the public may believe that they have access to that shoreline and and therefore can walk along it as they wish. This informality leaves people confused about their place in relation to the shoreline. Yeah, I, I would just like to add another comment to that, if I could. You know, as humans, we all feel, I think, that we have this sort of desire uh, and our human nature is to have a universal right of access to to water, which is such a common resource we all cherish. And, you know, when you look at the definition of what is legal, what brings into question, I think, for, for most of the public is, is it actually accessible? Can I enjoy it? Do I have a right? And is it universally implied? And I think what makes it complicated is, is basically history itself and this sort of notion of, and I'll call it personal nut gathering over time, because I think what, what's happened is as people have purchased, you know, water frontage, there is this sort of thing of, well, that's mine. Don't even think about coming near it. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, going back to this kind of human nature issue, I think we all sort of struggle to some degree with, um, you know, shouldn't we all have access uh, regardless of ownership. And it really does become quite complicated with history uh, wrapping itself into that question. Maybe you guys can talk about important planning and design considerations when we're thinking about waterfront development and we're going about executing that waterfront development. You know, when we think about what decision making uh, becomes important when we consider development on a waterfront uh, piece of property. And I think, you know, the challenge is inevitably always to seek an appropriate balance with the development programming and wish list and an open space programming and an accessibility wish list. And so it brings into the design, you know, considerations always the issues of the importance of maintaining 
a balance where we provide watersheds uh, and view sheds to the water, where we provide clear signals and design for accessibility, where things like stewardship, uh, because water, you know, waterfronts are not always urban. And, you know, so we need to also kind of in the design considerations, think about protection and sensitivity and stewardship for those lands and protection of the natural assets that the context of that site may have. And so it's really a, a kind of a, a mixture of really important decisions that need to be brought into play so that we, you know, we really preserve the integrity of those uh, very valuable resources. Most of our cities and towns started at the water's edge. And it was an important edge of the water where, in the case of Winnipeg, two rivers came together and the forks became the start of Winnipeg, or Toronto started at the, at the waterfront where the, where the train tracks uh, went across. And I'll get to that sort of a bit later. But in many urban settings, intensification has been permitted in exchange for giving the public access along the water's edge. So again, we're dealing with more than likely redevelopment, whether it be North Bay, whether it be Barrie, whether it be Toronto, it's the railway is moving out from the water's edge. The town is coming to the water's edge. But the opposite of that in rural areas, conservation policies to protect environmental areas have resulted in either significant restrictions to prevent development from going near the water. Farms have to issue their farm plans now so that their uh, waste and that doesn't get into rivers and things beside them. The other side of it is our uh, good examples, our conservation authorities have stepped forward. They are protecting the shorelines of our, of our water uh, areas. In many cases, uh, some areas need to be protected even from the public to the extent the trails would damage those environmental areas. So there isn't there even is a protection of the public access within conservation areas of environmentally sensitive areas. So I think those are the, the two different dynamics that we're working with. So Don and Pat raise an interesting idea here, which is intensification. Intensification involves essentially increasing development permissions in an area, which often looks like allowing higher densities. When intensification happens on waterfronts, it can actually lead to improved public access. This is obviously dependent on the previous use of that waterfront. Cities and towns across North America were developed along waterfronts because of the ease of access for trading and water as a valuable agricultural and industrial resource. When industry leaves, waterfronts often become derelict brownfields, rendering them useless to the public. Municipalities, especially smaller ones, lack the resources to conduct the necessary environmental remediation that is often needed before making that land usable again. By permitting residential development and intensification, you essentially funnel private money into these areas to do the necessary environmental remediation and development, and then cities and towns can mandate community benefits, such as public access, in that development process. This surprised me. I always thought that intensification would restrict public access to the water, when a lot of the time, if that development pressure didn't hit the waterfronts, most of these areas, and especially in old industrial cities, would be completely off limits for citizens anyways. I think as long as municipalities function in this neoliberal era and within capitalist systems, then this intensification with the hope for community benefits and public access to the waterfront can provide a good solution. 
However, it doesn't really get to the root of the issue, which is that if you do not own land in this country, you are excluded from participation in that space. It is also important to recognize that this exclusion is often race-based and affects racialized people the most. In later episodes and in my research paper, I will dive into this exclusion more closely. I, I concur with Dawn's assessment of how, for instance, railway lands have become prime sites for re reinvention and reconnection you know, to our waterfronts for both the public and the private. And I think the new uses that we're you know, experiencing are certainly open space and parkland, but also residential development and institutional and cultural uh, uses as well, because it is such a, a desirable uh, place to be. And I think the best examples are most evident where the context of the waterfront site itself and the context of adjoining land uses are considered whereby important linkages and viewsheds are maximized. Because I think sometimes we, uh, we get trapped into looking at a site with inwardly rather than outwardly as well. And this is really critical because I think, you know, it's really important that those connections are strategic strategically designed into, you know, the places that we're designing on the water. What Pat is referring to here is landscape connectivity. In the context of urban planning and design, landscape connectivity requires a shift of focus away from the development of a specific site and towards the larger context of that area. Rick Dawson of British Columbia's Ministry of Forests defines connectivity as a landscape's structural and functional continuity over both time and space scales. Ecological systems and processes are not bound by property lines that we have created. Ecosystems and landscapes are naturally connected to one another, facilitating an uninhibited flow of organisms and natural processes, preserving and enhancing landscape connectivity can protect these natural conditions across space and throughout time. Unfortunately today, natural ecosystems in both urban and rural contexts are fragmented and segregated from their counterparts, resulting in poor outcomes for landscape connectivity and ecosystem services. Private property plays a big role in fragmenting these systems and disrupting these natural processes, especially along the waterfront. Landscape connectivity should also be understood as having social implications. Ecosystems and natural processes are not the only beneficiaries of improved landscape connectivity. Humans and communities also thrive in well-connected natural and urban spaces. Rachel May, a researcher from Syracuse University, has explored the concept of cognitive connectivity, which she essentially describes as, quote, educational and aesthetic interventions that allow urban dwellers to experience their place in the urban watershed in ways that do not jeopardize its ecological systems. This is the central focus of this episode, and I think that it is what we should all strive for, a balance between ecological and human systems, as well as the recognition that they are not two separate entities. This is a really important consideration for waterfront development. So Pat, how can we achieve waterfront development that is ecologically sound and socially responsible? You know, in the end, we only have one waterfront and one opportunity. And we use that that phrase often because it, it, it really emphasizes the importance of doing this right in and because you do only have one opportunity and you know and one of the 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 vehicles that we have and help them helping us in this decision making process is the preparation of the waterfront master plan because it provides an important guideline framework for the decision making, you know, by uh, those that need to make important decisions on the recreational programming opportunities in order to maximize a healthy urban core 
and waterfront for all citizens on a year-round basis. Because waterfront developments are such integral places for families to gather and enjoy uh, and for cultural activities, it, it, it is just fundamentally critical that, uh, that we, we do this in, in an appropriate and proper uh, and responsible way. So Don, while I was exploring this topic of waterfront and public access, I came across Section 37 of the Ontario Planning Act, and it seems as though it can be an important tool in this kind of development. So can you explain what this is? Um, Section 37 of the Ontario Planning Act provides for bonusing where public benefits are provided. So in intensification, which is basically upzoning, where you're where you're giving more permission in the zoning, and where the official plan prescribes the process, because it can't be uh, unstructured, it has to be structured. So the way it works is the, the act requires the official plan put in your particular parameters of bonusing. So in return for the upzoning, the uh, applicant would provide uh, public waterfront access of the front of the property, um, which is what we've talked about, or perhaps physical improvements like public art or piazzas with development. So here, the, the public are getting something out of the development and the intensification is benefiting as well. So that, so that in, in the case of Section 37, Toronto uses it extensively, you, you're, you're using the approval to strike that balance. And there's opportunities for, as I said, public art Back to Pat's point in Windsor, the public art program is, is on that same strip of parkland extending along the river. So the you're putting other facets that are important to your community. It could be that they, they build a, a public gazebo that provides access or uh, to some facility on the waterfront. And in return, they, they have the upzoning. And, and again, I, and I'll stress, the structure of that can't be subjective. It has to be founded in, in objectivity. So it's not just let's make a deal. So this Section 37 of the Ontario Planning Act is quite similar to what we discussed earlier with intensification. As Don describes, Section 37 is considered a bonusing tool. Essentially, in areas that are upzoned, which means granting more permissions for a development for things like dwelling size and density, the municipality can mandate the developer to include community benefits. The way I see it is that it is a good bargaining tool for municipalities. They can allow greater densities, which developers often want because it increases the number of units they can build, thus increasing the number of units they sell. And in turn, they can ask developers for things like affordable housing and public parks. This tool becomes especially important for waterfront developments, whereby municipalities can allow greater intensification and in turn and ask for the developer to build a boardwalk surrounding the waterfront or affordable housing or things I mentioned earlier. Section 37 is really all about striking this balance that Pat discussed earlier. So Pat, do you see positive outcomes with the use of Section 37? Well, I, you know, I know in some of the experiences I've had on projects where a you know, developer is seeking an increase in density or number of units and the Section 37 benefit is that, you know, it, it actually provides an opportunity, especially for you know, municipalities and towns where the implementation of the open space is always one of the last items you know, to seek funding for in many cases, and it may take years for it to be realized. But under a Section 37, it does allow a little opening for 
cash to be brought into play, and Don mentioned some great examples, um, to implement some of the open space in the earlier stages of the development. So in that way, I, I see it as potentially a really interesting win-win where the opportunity to move a project forward can be realized um, and the development project receives its benefit, but you know, the public and open space receives its benefit equally. So just to move beyond waterfronts now um, and into more general planning, I guess, what is the role of planners and designers and, and policymakers in improving the public's access to land? Maybe I could just speak for a moment to what I see as the role of the designer when it comes to improving the, the public's access to land. And I think the first to me is, is to be fully engaged and um, in an all-inclusive way and have a full understanding of number one, the context of the site, the adjacent land uses, the opportunities and constraints. And number two is to be fully engaged in, in the program for that site and to be able to think outside the box and to be a real team player in, in that process. And this is where I think architecture and landscape architecture really need to understand each other and to work um, inclusively with each other. And to be a good listener, you know, with all the stakeholders. I mean, the design uh, as a process when it comes to public access to land needs to be one whereby everyone understands the opportunities and the process involved and it and it really then becomes a dialogue of of consensus building uh, which I think is really important you know so that you know there is a trust that be, you know that develops between those that are making the decisions those that are designing for that decision making and those that will be accepting and engaging in the end result you know the obvious desire I think you know, from the general public is to have zero built form on the water's edge and to make it all parkland. And we hear that often, you know, why, you know, why are you allowing built form on a waterfront site? And I, I think, you know, where we as designers, uh, we need to, you know, to pay respect to the needs of accessibility for all and provide unique new opportunities for everyone. And the waterfronts if done in an appropriate and sensitive way can be really incredibly unique uh, vehicles to celebrate the past to, for storytelling and to animate you know, uh, new programming in amazing ways. And so you know, I, I say to those that are maybe perhaps you know, viewed as singular in their thinking to kind of just be a little bit broader in accepting that good design and good design decision-making can actually be incredibly positive to, you know, to everyday life in, in, you know, wherever you live. And I think picking up on that, Pat, as well, at early planning, we segregated uses. You know, we tended to put industry over there and residential over there, commercial there, whatever. And our, and our cities suffered for that because nobody was living in the downtowns. And, and, and so, you know, going back to Jane Jacobs and the death and life of great American cities and, we, you know, the best planning uh, journal anywhere. And, and even when I graduated in Toronto, I was wondering, why are we putting people downtown? But in the end, as our world has changed and become more mixed, having natural surveillance in the downtown with people living in the downtown, 
as well as working in the downtown. So they don't, they don't die at a certain time of day or a certain part or utilities can be used all day long with all the different uses changing and people coming and going. So the waterfront is the same. And, and by people living in the waterfront, they are providing natural surveillance. They are the people that are there along with the visitors, along with the people in town who come to walk in the downtown or on the town pier. So that there's that whole element of, of mixed use and, and activity, which really comes together so that those areas will not be vandalized or will not be left in danger of being used. Look at New York City and Central Park and how in, in the middle of a city, a park has so many different functions. Well, our waterfronts are similar. I'm just trying to pick up on Pat's point about saying that waterfronts should strictly be sterile and green and, and have nothing on them. Well, for large parts of our waterfront, that's true. But where the downtown extends to the waterfront is more of an opportunity for an urban experience. And while it may not be as large an area, they're certainly walked and they're certainly used in a very major way. And I think that's that same point we're trying to make. There's a place for everybody at the waterfront. And how can we ensure that we are, in fact, planning for the public interest? Well, I think in two ways. I mean, we've talked about municipal controls, but I think through greater education and dialogue so that people understand uh, what we're talking about. As Pat said, some people have certain uh, single focused aspects to their interest, whereas if we educate people and, and talk about it more, and I think planners need to uh, take their official plans and their documents and zoning and engage as to what's behind them and how they function. I, I think you need a greater level of understanding to understand the dynamics of what's occurring. And, and, and I think it's common sense. You know, people like to read about home improvements. So they like to read about real estate now. And there's a great interest around that. Well, there should be the same interest around the planning of our communities and, 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 and what we're doing. And and not necessarily take things for granted so that as we evolve, we, we have to understand that evolution and, and uh, you know, planning, people fear change. Uh, planning is about change. So we have to quantify that change. We also have to visually uh, describe it and we have to show other areas that have already gone through that change or or the way they culturally approach it, whether it be uh, in Europe or South America or wherever else, you can bring examples so people can see, oh, that's where we're going. Oh, that's what it looks like. Or, or, or our world is changing. Thank you so much for joining us, Don and Pat. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Over the last 50 years, I think we are going in the right direction. I think we're spending public funds uh, and public priorities to open up access. I think in the 50 years, you know, that we're looking at since planning really got started, uh, late 60s, early, early 70s, I think, I think we are heading in the right direction. I think we've, conservation authorities have acquired major holdings, uh, the Niagara Escarpment or the waterfronts that have been shown to happen. And there's been a lot of work done behind and a lot of great people have done a lot of great things. And, and I think 
we you should never be complacent, but I think you, we should also be optimistic in my mind that we're heading in the right direction. I'd like to leave one lingering thought, just having gone through this, this wonderful process with you, and that over the last 45 plus years, you know, I have been rewarded and enjoyed participation in helping make, you know, better places for people. But the takeaway for me is that in 1973, when my career commenced, and I'm speaking purely as a landscape architect, that the role of, of the landscape architect and landscape architecture was actually quite superficial. And, you know, it was brought in at the tail end of a decision-making process about places for people. But that has changed over time where today it is very you know, rewarding actually to experience that design is a fully engaged process from the outset of a project, whether it be public or private. And I think you know, the reward for that is that you know, places that we are now designing are more meaningful and we all gain from the outcomes. And I, I wanna congratulate you on what you're doing right now because it certainly brings forward that you know the the process for engaging designers engaging the public engaging the decision makers in our political system requires this kind of level of, of new experience and, and you're doing an amazing job so thank you for letting us participate So after speaking with Don and Pat, I was feeling quite optimistic about waterfront development and kind of the opportunities for community benefits, if so desired. I wanted to solidify our understanding of waterfront and property with an example of contested access in a town close to where I live, the Blue Mountains. The town of the Blue Mountains is located on the eastern shores of Lake Huron within Georgian Bay. As you drive along Highway 26 towards the town proper, you are captivated by the vastness of Georgian Bay. It looks like an ocean a distant horizon, crystal blue waters, and sandy beaches. But this scene is disrupted by large detached homes that look like they're from a magazine, homes that people really dream to have. These homes give their owners unfettered access to the views, sandy beaches, and waterfront. The town and areas surrounding it have become quite a target for development pressures. The real estate market is hot and attracts people buying secondary properties. With several ski hills, a vast shoreline along Georgian Bay, hiking and cycling trails, and boutique shops, the area offers a four-season lifestyle and meets the demands of people wishing to get out of the big city. This rapid development and influx of residents has led to conflict. Some local community members really feel like the community is changing and that the town is not doing enough to kind of preserve the local character and strike a balance between incoming residents and the community that has long lived in the area. This conflict is present all throughout the town, but becomes intensified along the waterfront. One case that has gained significant attention in recent years is the Aquaville residential waterfront development. Aquaville has bought the lands previously home to the Easter Seals Camp, which was a camp for children with physical and mental disabilities. The camp in Blue Mountains first opened its doors in 1937. Based on conversations I had off the record with various planners and community members, the camp, located along the water's edge, allowed public access to the water. This informal access was predominantly for neighboring residents and other local community members that were kind of in the know. Since the camp left and sold the land, it has been bought up by several developers looking to redevelop the site into residential lots. All of the developers have been met with a ton of community backlash during public consultation. 
The current developer, Aquaville, is no exception to this. They have put up fences surrounding the property, signaling to the members of the public that public access is strictly prohibited. Its residential plans also state that no public access will be permitted along the waterfront. Between 2019 and September 2020, the town hosted public consultation hearings. The events of the consultation have been transcribed and summarized in a 54-page document. I read through these comments and it's evident that the local community is quite angry about the developer blocking public access, especially because the public has been granted informal access since 1937. This kind of informal access to land is quite complicated. When there's a change of ownership, these informal agreements are no longer going to be maintained, unless the new owner decides that they're okay with it. I think informality is important in urban and rural spaces, especially when it comes to public land and parks. However, if public access is something that a municipality believes in, it needs to be mandated and formalized, or else it will not be followed through on. It also leaves me wondering if this kind of backlash from the public would occur if the municipality really worked to provide more beach access in between these private developments, and ensured that we had enough parkland for people to access along the water. It is a difficult situation. I think the Aquaville development presents an opportunity for the city to use that Section 37 and mandate certain public goods as part of the development. This can include some kind of waterfront access, a waterfront boardwalk trail, something like that. But I also think if we explored alternative forms of access to land, we could preserve these waterfronts as spaces for people and not for profit. Thank you for sticking with me this far. Today we broke down waterfront private property and why it can be a difficult thing to navigate for private owners, the public, and local governments. But my hope is that we are also inspired by the possibility of waterfronts and intensification that can bring positive benefits for communities. I still urge us to imagine alternatives to the status quo in land use and development. As we discussed in previous episodes, if we reimagine land use to become more about our relationship with the land, and land as a common good that all of us should have access to, we can move away from the colonial ideals of land which center around ownership, control, and exclusion. I think that will leave us all better off. The next episode will be my final one. It will be a short one and will just kind of synthesize and summarize some of the discussions I've had with my guests and hopefully leave us with ways to move forward. Thanks for listening. Thank you to my guests Don May and Pat Bolenberg for being on the show today. All of the resources used to create this episode will be listed and linked in the show notes. 